0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with Sub China. China is the best way to keep up with the latest news on China with a free email newsletter, a smartphone app, and at the website, subchina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from the Seneca South studio here in downtown Durham, North Carolina. I am joined from Nashville, Tennessee, by Jeremy Goldkorn, interim editor-in-chief of SupChina, whose ongoing fight against extradition to China in connection with his extensive network of illegal coal mines in Sanxi province is an inspiration to each and every one of us. How's it going, Jeremy? You staying strong? (laughs) Yeah, well, you
0: know, the coal price is up, so... (laughs) <laughs> is, that, are good. is that because of Trump? <laughs> <laughs> Probably.
1: <laughs> well, today we're honored to be speaking with John Pomfret, whose latest book, The Beautiful Country and the Middle Kingdom, America and China, 1776 to the Present, Hit stores in late November. John is a veteran reporter who spent many years in China, first as one of the very first American students to study in China, and later as a journalist for the Associated Press during the tumultuous Beijing Spring of 1989. He was expelled from China after the massacre of June 3rd to 4th, but returned to China and served as bureau chief for the Washington Post in Beijing for several years. John's first book was. Chinese lessons, an informative and very entertaining account of his time as a student in China and the trajectories of his Chinese classmates and friends. John's new book covers the entirety of the often very fraught relationship between China and the United States, and it's really indispensable for anyone who wants to better understand this most important bilateral relationship, especially now, in a time when all the complexities of Sino-American relations are very much back in the news as Donald Trump prepares to take office, and many of the old policy debates that date back to the Chinese Civil War are back in play. The book is a terrific read and keeps you engaged even at a whopping 600 pages or so. Uh, So listeners, make sure to ask for this for Christmas. John Pomfret, congrats on the book and welcome to Seneca.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Kaiser and Jeremy. I'm really, really happy to be here. John, this book must have been quite a labor.
0: I remember seeing you in Beijing, uh, it feels like many, many years ago, and I I think it must have been 2012 because you gave me a lift to my old office on on Jinbaojie. And I think you were already well into the research of the book. So how long did you work on this book? And also, uh, this book is really different from Chinese lessons. I mean, Chinese lessons tells. Uh, the stories of other people's lives, uh, as well as your own, and it was very much based on personal experiences and friendships in China, whereas this this work seems much more a work of almost pure scholarship. Why did you want to write such a book, and how different was the experience?
2: So answer to your first question, it took me six years. I've been thinking about it for a lot longer, but um, actual work on the book six years, it cost me one great job and three job offers, but that's life. <laughs> um, in, in, in and of itself, it, I, I have to say from this perspective, now it was worth it. So, it, yeah, it's a very different book than Chinese Lessons was. Chinese Lessons was, uh, is a much more personal book, and this is uh, less personal from that perspective. But my life, like you guys, I, I've lived China. I've lived U.S.-China relations. Jeremy, you're not American. We won't hold that against you. But I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> I mean, I, I grew up basically living U.S.-China relations and living us china relations as i got older and covered china covered us china relations i began to have a sense that in this house that these two great countries were building together there there were a lot of ghosts if you will a lot of attitudes a lot of like why why do chinese respond so positively when you tell them you're an american Why do Americans think that all Chinese are hardworking and industrious and smarter than they are? These type of issues that I saw sort of coming out again and again drove me actually to this project because I I wanted to to, to sort of discover, okay, yes, we've been engaging with China since 1972 when Richard Nixon went to China, but the reality was our relationship has been so much broader and deeper than that. It's gone on for 200 years since the, I mean, from what I discovered since the founding of the American Republic. And that desire to understand the backstory pushed me towards this project. And by necessity, because, you know, none of us were around in the 1770s, scholarship sort of took over. But at the same time, because I'm a journalist, the desire to turn it into a narrative and make it accessible, you know, let the story tell the story, if you will, uh, allowed me to write it in such a way that I hope it's accessible to the average reader. Well, it
1: certainly is very accessible, but at the same time, you did do quite a bit of, of good scholarly research. So, so talk a little bit about some of the sources that you might have tapped for this that might not have been available to earlier researchers. I, mean, I saw, for instance, that there, you you had troves of, of letters from the missionary come feminist Adele Field, and uh, those came from the American Baptist Historical Society, but there were other things, too. Uh, I, I, John Kai-shek's diaries, for example, that that haven't figured in too much other writing. Can you talk a little bit about the sources you, you, you used?
2: Yeah. So uh, for the early part, I relied a lot on memoirs, a lot also on unpublished PhD dissertations by the, the, a wealth of both Chinese and Western scholarship on the period. Uh, there's a lot of new research on the um, formative business relationships, the sort of business history between the United States and China done by people like Fred Grant and others that was very important in understanding sort of the foundation of that trade relationship. And then going forward, there's a lot of Chinese scholarship that's really, really good on U.S.-China relations. Um, there's a significant portion of Chinese scholarship which basically tows the party line. But there's a, there are a lot of Chinese scholars who don't tow the party line who have been writing fascinating things. And so as – basically if you're talking sort of post-communist revolution – there's a lot of scholarship on these the series of these anti-American campaigns that were led by uh, Mao Zedong in order to get Chinese people to hate the hate the United States and there's a lot of stuff in the archives that Chinese scholars not Western scholars have had access to and using the Chinese scholars work that really helped me to understand better that period of time uh, in addition Yeah that uh, was some
1: really great stuff that you, you inserted
2: there yeah, and and that's, I mean, luckily, um you know i i I spent a lot of time sitting on my butt learning Chinese, and so that allowed <laughs> me to be able to read it with relative quickness because, 300-page books in any language take a while, but in Chinese, it can take a lot longer, and luckily, I could read it quickly enough to get through it, and, and there are a lot of nuggets in the research, researches out of universities in Shanghai, Beijing, uh, and actually in Xiamen, for example. That there, there was another really great trove of, of research from there on, on the U.S.-Taiwan PRC triangle.
0: John, you, you just mentioned the early business relationships between China and America. And in fact, the book starts off with an account of early commercial encounters in the 18th century when the U.S. was still a long way from being the preeminent superpower. And American traders, in fact, had to work around the British Empire, in some ways nibbling at the crumbs from the British East India Company. Exactly. Uh, it's seeing the huge opportunities that were there. Can you give our listeners a sense for just how much the lucrative promise of the China trade shaped American priorities in the first few decades after the birth of the U.S.? And maybe the differences between the way Americans saw their commercial activities in China compared to the Brits
2: of the day? So a great question it's difficult to imagine what it was like to be an American back in the, you know, just, just when we'd, we'd, we'd won the War of Independence. But we were not an industrial power. In fact, we had very little industry whatsoever. And in 1783, we found ourselves, and we were, at the time, we were a seafaring nation that re- really relied on trade. Um, a significant portion of the economy was in agriculture, but, it, but most of the agriculture that made money was exported in terms of cotton, uh, you know, the slave trade. And that that cotton had to leave the United States in order to make, it, make a profit. We had no textile mills at the time. And so the folks in Boston and New England and Philadelphia, facing a situation where all the ports near us in the Caribbean and elsewhere were blocked to American ships. Basically, the Brits, after they lost the war, they decided, well, we're just going to squeeze that country, that those territories to death. And at that point, Several Americans came up with this Hail Mary idea that, by golly, if we begin trading with China of all places, we're going to be able to break this effective embargo and make a lot of money and help our treasury as we do it. And so they began to send ships to China. The first ship actually left in 1783, the year we achieved independence, and made a profit of about 30%. And from then on in, uh, hundreds more ships followed. And we became the second biggest trading partner uh, to, with China in the space of about five or 10 years. China at that time. And what were we trading? So the first ship contained. Numerous tons of American ginseng because right. there 's a natural version of American ginseng that grows in the appalachian mountains it 's actually still farmed in the United States and it 's still picked wild in the United States as well um in Kentucky and the Appalachians along the appalachian sort of spine on the east Coast. And so ginseng left, also a a lot of Mexican silver. And that was exchanged for tea and cloth. And then very quickly, uh, China from China became very popular among Americans. Um, George Washington had a 110-piece set of Chinese China brought back for him actually in the first voyage, but many other prominent Americans uh, like the Chinese tchotchkes as well. And in a country at a t- at the time when basically uh, your wealth was determined or your status was determined by how many chairs you had in your house, having a piece of China from China or or one of these Basically, uh, a sort of painting from China was was a sense that you know you had arrived in in the middle class, if you if if you will. Now, in terms of the business model, so at the time that the Americans went to to, to Guangzhou to Canton to trade, they were they confronted the, this British Empire and this massive monopoly called the East India Trading Company, which was a, which a huge monopoly, which dominated trade in, in the in the Far East. It was kind of the Walmart of the day because they could move so much stuff and buy so much stuff they could demand a very low price from their Chinese partners. And the Americans came in and they had several things that the Chinese liked. The Americans had silver And the East Indian Company was actually trying to do barter trade, sort of trading British cloth for Chinese tea. But the Americans generally, even though they tried selling a lot of ginseng, but then the price of ginseng crashed, they tried selling sea otter pelts, but after a while, they basically wiped out the sea otters along the Pacific Northwest coast. They tried selling seal pelts, but they wiped out the seals um, in in the South Seas. And so ultimately, the Americans were bringing silver. And that was great for the Chinese because silver was, was cash in China. And so the Chinese liked that also because the Americans didn't buy as much in bulk. Uh, the Chinese could f- afford to sell at a higher price. And But the American model, as they faced this, the British was basically Americans were faced with a choice. should they try to create a monopoly company like the East India Company to compete with the British, or should they basically do it on an individual basis? And there was a debate in Congress about this. And finally, the House of Representatives determined that we don't want to have monopolies like this. We want to allow adventurers, quote unquote, as they called it, to, to push the trade with China. And so the Americans built faster boats. They had smaller boats they allowed their, um, the people on the ship to do a lot more trading on their own individual accounts. So individual sailors could make a large profit in addition to working for the, for the, for the captain. They could make a profit of their own as well. They could move up in the ranks, whereas the British were much more regimented. If you were you know a deckhand, you were a deckhand almost forever, and their chance of becoming a captain was a lot lower. And so this type of much more entrepreneurial model Oh, really? Set the scene in a way back home to how the United States was constructing its economy,
1: and that's something that really is a re- recurring theme throughout the book. is Is the way in which encounters with China not only shaped China but also shaped America?
2: Right, exactly. And, and we have fascinating. We, it, that's we have this idea in the states that you know we're the ones that have influenced them, but the reality is, and specifically if you go back into the early days, the, their influence on us was was deep and abiding. Just a couple of this idea that that China was going to be a source of American riches. Um, you know, we you, you've, we've seen it in the '70s, '80s, and '90s, and just in the last couple of decades in the United States being a very important part of the the, the rapprochement between the United States and China. But in the 1780s, 90s, and in the early years of the 1800s, that was a very powerful idea, partially because in many ways they did enrich the United States. The first fortunes in in America were the New England families that traded with China. And that money that they made had a huge influence on the economy of the United States because those men and women, well, mostly men, funneled that money back into the United States in terms of creating textile mills and investing in the first railroads, and That's that right. laid the foundation for the United States becoming the factory of the world, which is you know there ironic. are some household
1: names too in American right. capitalism, like Forbes, for
2: example. Forbes, f- who you know we uh, who is a direct ancestor, uh, John Forbes, uh, who was a big China trader, was, is a direct ancestor right. of John Forbes Carey, our current Secretary of State. So it's it's significant that I
1: think that you start your book at least nominally in the year 1776. Uh, that was really the apex of imperial China, or at least of the Qing dynasty, um, at that time, something like two-thirds of the world's minted silver was in China that was, you know during Qianlong's reign, about the same percentage of, of the world's printed books, if memory serves. So what did these proud Chinese make of, of the Americans? I mean, were they able at all to e- even distinguish them from the other barbarians? I mean, what was the state of knowledge in China about America at the, in the early decades of, of our relationship
2: so when the Americans first showed up, uh, the first boat was, was led by a fellow by the name of Samuel Shaw. And Shaw was an artillery commander during the Revolutionary War. He was a very close associate of George Washington. And he led the first several ships to coming to China. And uh, when he got there, basically, he had to spend a lot of time trying to convince the Chinese that the Americans were somehow different from the British. And at the time, clearly there was no no love lost between the Americans and the Brits, and ultimately, with the um, with the help of the French, they convinced the Chinese that the Americans were different, and the Chinese liked the American flag. They called the American flag the the, the flowery flag, and they called the American the Huachi, hua which is interesting because. It's the name of, of the, the national bank, uh, the U.S. national bank, which then became Citibank. It's now Citibank's name in China, uh, Um And so the Americans became the ah. people from the... Fl- the American... No, that's really? it. Oh, yeah. You just realized <laughs> uh, that, huh? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so Citibank's name in Chinese is, has, has taken that, that old name. And so the um, then the Chinese began began to call the Americans the new people. And over time... As the negotiations in business went on, the Chinese began to sense a difference in the United States than, than from from those of the British. The British could be generally relatively overbearing, and one of the reasons why the British were overbearing was because they had a navy at their back. Right when they had trouble, they could always rely on the, the massive naval force of of the British Royal Navy. Whereas the Americans didn't have anybody to help them. Actually, going out to China, they had no one supporting them. They were totally reliant on the kindness of strangers. They had to dock their boats in French or British ports. And then once they got to Asia, we didn't have any diplomatic representation for decades into the relationship. They had several of these kind of vice consuls, but those folks were basically traders who had been given, you know, an extra bit of money by the U.S. government to represent U.S. interests, but they didn't do anything. So if you kind of make a comparison between U.S. attitudes and activities as America pushed west on the continent, at those points, American settlers were extremely often extremely aggressive because they had the cavalry behind them. But in China, they had to be on very good behavior because when things went bad, they had no official sources or military on which to rely. And so the Chinese you know adopted this view well, well these these people actually can be acculturated these people are 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 open to our civilization and the Americans basically had to be at that time
1: you have Prince Gong saying I mean uh, a century later the American barbarians are pure minded and honest in disposition and have always been loyal to China <laughs> that's really great great line
2: yeah he was quite a character
0: John, one thing I I really enjoyed about the book is the huge number of delightful anecdotes about particular individuals who played a role in the relationship, including many, many stories that I've never encountered before from the Chinese officials who facilitated early trade. I'm thinking of, I'm not sure if the pronunciation is right, Houkwa, how how do you pronounce that? Houkwa, Wu
2: Bingjian, yes, Houkwa. Yeah, Wu
0: Bingjian. Um, And then there are the famous Siamese twins, uh, Chang and Ang, who actually gave the English language the the word Siamese twin. Uh, I I never suspected it had a role to play in this history. And (laughs) (laughs) I'm also thinking of the long-haired Californian stoner who played a possibly accidental but enormously consequential part? Could we uh, talk about some of these stories and maybe just start with these three? Could you tell us about Hou the 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 twins, and Glenn Cohen and the Chinese ping pong
2: team bus? Sure. So uh, let's start with Haukua. Haukua was uh, so at the time, the late 18th century, early 1800s, the 19th century, early 1800s. The Chinese controlled their contact with the foreigners and basically limited it to to Guangzhou in most cases, although the Russians were allowed to to have representations in in northern china and so the trading the main trading happened uh, along along the china 's southern coast and focused on Guangzhou and in Guangzhou there was something called the Thirteen Hongs, which was an organization of Chinese traders that were approved by the, the emperor to handle trade with the Western barbarians. And Wu Bing Bingzian at the time in the early um, 1800s, was the head of this the, these Hongs. He was the main guy. And the Hongs actually had a very efficient form of trade because they guaranteed each other's gains and losses. And so it's an interesting type of trading relationship because it was very efficient given the fact that, let's say, one guy was was dealing with huge debts. The other Hongs would actually back him up. And that type of relationship allowed trade to go on because an important part of trade is 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 being able to get money in advance so you can buy goods in advance and also there's a lot of debt and loans being done for for any good working trade system and and the thirteen Hongs were actually considered a worldwide model for uh, for finance they were so good that that the United States, the early creation of, of federal deposit insurance, for example, was based on the 13 Hongs. It was it was the, in New York State. They they experimented it and using very, very um, clearly in the 13 Hongs as a model. So Wu Bingzhen was the chief of the 13 Hongs at the time. And he, of course, was doing lots of trading with lots of countries. His biggest trading partner was with the um, East India Company. But he liked the Americans, again, for those reasons. The Americans brought him silver, whereas The the East India Company always wanted to do barter and sell British textiles in exchange for tea. And so he developed over time an extremely – very close relationship with a series of American businessmen who were sent to to China basically as teenagers. And under his tutelage, they became uh, excellent businessmen. And John Forbes was one of them. The the trust he had in the Americans, the Americans considered extraordinary. So he – because of U.S. laws, basically, if you imported tea to America at the time on an American ship, the tariffs were a lot lower than if you imported tea on a foreign ship. And so he would – basically consign his tea to the, to American traders. And on paper, it would look like he actually had sold it to them. But the American traders actually didn't buy it. They would bring it to America and sell it on his behalf and then bring the silver back to him in China. And so at, at any given time, he would have several million dollars worth of tea floating towards the United States Basically, on a, on, a, on, a, on a wing and a prayer, just trusting the Americans that they once they sold the tea on the docks of New York, Philly, Boston or Salem, that they would actually bring this silver back to China. But almost every case they did. And so the trusting relationship between him and these American partners was extremely, extremely close. There was a very there's a wonderful series of correspondence between the American traders and Wu Jian where like they they send him a they actually send him a cow at a certain time, and the cow calves has a calf on board, and so you know two cows show up in Guangzhou because it takes several months to get there, and he writes back says this is wonderful the cow is 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 healthy it was a little skinny when it got here with its calf but nonetheless it now is is providing me with a liberal quantity of milk he wrote. <laughs> so there there's that, you know, and they sent him cookies because his his first wife liked American cookies. And so there was to go was with this, the milk. Right? To go with the milk, exactly, so, and along with a rocking chair. So there's this friendly relationship between him, very very close relationship between him and these American traders, so much so that when John Forbes comes back to the United States in the in the 1820s, bringing a huge swath of his, the, the money he's made, massive amounts of silver. He also brings, the estimate maybe is about $500,000 in Wubing well Jen's silver as well. And he then takes that money in and begins investing it in the, the foundation of American industry, including railroads, and so actually the first Chinese because we know we know the Chinese built half the transcontinental railroad in the 1860s but actually the first Chinese involvement was in the American railroads was not as laborers but it was as, as investors through the through with you know it's Wo Bing money going through John Forbes's investment bank in Boston. Uh, so that type of relationship, and, and Wu Binjiang is not sort of an outlier. There are many other Chinese business businessmen and merchants at the time had these very close relations with their American partners. So that's Wu that's Binjiang. fascinating.
1: Let's talk about the Siamese twins, these these, uh, Chang and Eng.
2: (laughs) So Chang and Eng Bunker, uh, they were, I mean, they're the source for the word, the term Siamese twins. They were born, they're Chinese um, migrants born in in Thailand and Bangkok, and they were brought to the United States by a, a British carnival barker as a freak show. You know, freak shows being the latter days, uh, internet, YouTube, funny cat video type of thing. And <laughs> he he made the the, the British uh, manager made a lot of money on them, but they felt that they were exploited. So they took him to court. And it's actually not the first time Chinese had taken Americans to court. There were some debt issues between Chinese traders and American traders in the early 1800s. There was an issue on the other side where Chinese in Guangzhou were ripping off Gilbert Stewart's portrait of Washington. Uh, and so he then actually threatened to take Chinese to court. So there was, you know, there, I mean, Americans being litigious people, you know, and, and Chinese understanding those the, in, a, in a way, the if you will, the, the model of American jurisprudence were, were involved in, in using the American court system from the beginning. So Chang and N Bunker were not really outliers. And they took the British, this British manager to court and they won. They got their freedom. From him, and then they began to represent themselves in freak shows and carnivals across the United States, and they made an enormous amount of money. They were very athletic, very strong, and they were fused basically, kind of at the hip. But they could do backflips. They could carry around uh, their customers on their shoulders. Uh, so it was quite a show. They wore tuxedos, and 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 sort of it was sort of a dance number with Siamese twins. It had that freakish aspect to it, but in so doing, they made a significant amount of money, so much so that they bought a plantation with slaves in the South. And then in North had, Carolina, no less. In North Carolina, no less. Exactly. Yeah. Actually, in the same- I, I intend to make a little pilgrimage there and check it out. You should. So, and they married sisters, and they, and they had a numerous children. And, um, and then they died uh, several hours apart uh, in their 60s uh, after a long uh, and very uh, fruitful life, if you will. It would have been very awkward if they hadn't died. Exactly, apart. it would, it would have been, but um, kind of weekend but weekend at but, Bernie's, but really, right? Um, so, but their story is fascinating because it it kept on popping up, it, it, like many Chinese related stories, it keeps on popping up in the American consciousness, and so there have been several novels written about them, and then in the middle of like, uh, there are two characters in Monsters University. Terry and Terry are these Asian uh, Siamese twins. And clearly, they come from Chang'aneng Bunker. And, and somehow in our DNA, this stuff keeps on rising up and manifesting itself in a different way. And so here we have a movie in, you know, the 2010s that sort of reflects this obsession we had with these carnival characters back in, back in the 18, 1810s, 1820s. Fascinating. Okay, finally, Glenn Glen we're talking about Glenn Cowan. So yeah. he he was a stoner. So, so the 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 Americans used to actually have a great ping pong team in the nineteen thirties. We were we were basically the best. And then it kind of fell off the map and it was no longer popular and, and it was basically ping pong became relegated to, you know, your basement ping pong table and, and the frat house. Then in the nineteen uh, nineteen seventy sorry, 1970, there was a ping pong championship and the Chinese decided they were going to take part. And this was being held in Nagoya, Japan. And the Americans were going to take part as well. And the Americans were ranked like 23rd or 35th or something way down on the bottom of the totem pole. <laughs> um, but the Americans were a team uh, of kind of long hairs, you know, kind of the, the, the groovy guys who, who, you know, went down to the basement and got stoned and played ping pong. And Glenn Cowan was one of those guys. Uh, He was a long-haired dude, liked to wear sunglasses and purple bell bottoms, and uh, he was part of the team. And uh, at a certain point in in the competition, the championship game in in Nagoya, he comes out and there's a bus there and he needs to go over to the practice hall. And it's the Chinese bus. And nobody knows exactly what happened because one news report said basically the Chinese invited him onto the bus. And another news report said he just got on the bus by accident. But and regardless... Goes, Whoa, dude. Exactly. And <laughs> re- regardless. I mean, you could see it happening, you know, especially because Cowan being sort of a hippie counterculture. So he gets on the bus and he gives a speech. He goes like... Look, I know you guys think I look like a freak, but actually there are lots of freaks like me back in America. We all got long hair and we we too are fighting oppression, you know, and actually we're brothers. You know, I, we understand that you with your Chairman Mao, because at the time, Chairman Mao among the counterculture in America was huge. I remember growing up, I grew up on 110th Riverside Drive near Columbia, listening to the chants of the Columbia students going, you know, Mao, Mao, Chairman Mao. So, I mean, Mao was extremely cool among people like Glenn Cowan. In fact, all the Americans were really curious uh, about the Chinese team. The Chinese sent reports back home saying, you know, these Americans are being really friendly to us. We don't really quite know what's going on. So Cowan gets on the bus and gives this kind of really pro-China speech. And in the back of the bus, the lead, the best Chinese player, basically stands up, walks forward. Shakes the guy's hand, gives him a Chinese uh, knickknack. Uh, I think it was a, a a silk screen of Huangshan, and then they <laughs> they get off the bus together, and they're surrounded by photographers. And there's Glenn Callan with this huge grin on his face, shaking the hand of of the Chinese one of the Chinese captain, and, and 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 it, it was it was a picture that went around the world. And then following on that. Um, Mao and Zhou Enlai, who had already made the decision not to invite the Americans to, to China for a follow on friendly matches, change their mind and basically invite the Americans to go to China to play. And that's the beginning of ping pong diplomacy, which gives Nixon and Kissinger the kind of the opening they need to re-engage, because they've already been thinking about this, and the Chinese have already been thinking about this as well, to re-engage and to begin to, to begin the process of, of the rapprochement.
1: And for, for another great story about ping-pong diplomacy, I would refer our listeners to an episode that we recorded early this summer with Jan Barris and Steve Orlands of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, where she, she talks about ping-pong diplomacy. Uh, make sure to check that out. So uh, some of these individuals that you introduce in the book are we call them archetypes? They're archetypes of sort. They represent the ways in which Americans or or Chinese have gotten it fundamentally wrong. Uh, there are other people, you know, for whom clearly you have a tremendous amount of sympathy. Maybe archetypes of, of the good, uh, who perhaps represent roads not taken. You have very strong opinions on just about every character who you you uh, introduce in the book. Some. Both the Chinese and the Americans are, are you know, deluded or, or even dangerous, and they really run the gamut from the zealous missionary types to the cowboys to the dupes for one or another version of Chinese exceptionalism. So, so let's talk about some of these archetypes, and maybe let's start with Issachar J. Cox Roberts. I just love that name. He was like this fire-and-brimstone Baptist preacher from the American South, of course, who played a, a role... In actually, one of the bloodiest civil wars in human history, the the Taiping Rebellion, and you bring him up as an example of what you call blitz conversion. Uh, what do you, what do you mean by this, and and what's the tendency that that this Issachar J. Cox Roberts represents?
2: So he came from Tennessee. Oh, ah, there you go, J- Jeremy. <laughs> he had a he he had moved to Mississippi, and he's working on his you know no cliche intended but hard scrabble farm sometime in the 1830s or so, and he has this, literally, this, this epiphany, this come-to-Jesus moment where he says, I'm going to go to China and I'm going to be a missionary. And so he goes to China as a missionary and, and starts working first in Macau and then moves to Hong Kong. But he's different than the other American missionaries. The other American missionaries had basically been working with the Chinese elite, sort of studying Chinese, trying to appeal to the elite. And he was trying to appeal to the masses, so he first began working in a leper colony, and his first convert was a mendicant uh, a beggar and He basically had this belief that by railing at the Chinese, you could get them to change their their views, sort of shove Jesus down the craw of the chinese and they 'll get it, and they 'll become they 'll become like us and He was very interested in the ideas of a Protestant German missionary who had who had this concept of blitz conversion of some type of miracle that would happen that would force the Chinese to all en masse come to Jesus. And Roberts looked at war as, an, as, as something that could bring the Chinese to their senses, if you will. And he had a church in Canton away from the foreign ghetto with no protection following the first opium war when foreigners, at that point, foreigners were allowed to do that even though it was not considered the smartest thing to do cuz you had no protection and a lot of the chinese didn't like christianity very much but he did it anyway and one of his earlier visitors was a fellow by the name of hong Xiuquan and his cousin who came there seeking guidance and hong had, had a hong s- uh, exactly yeah. and hong yeah, hong right. had a series had had a series of these kind of bad dreams or high fevers following a failure failing uh, civil service examination and in these dreams and high fevers he had these visions whereby there was a man with a golden beard and and hong was working with the man with the golden beard and they were smashing the temples of confucius and buddha and so hong was you know fascinated in what these meant and and came to the conclusion that the man with the golden beard was god and that Hong had been appointed as perhaps the younger brother of God, so he would be Jesus' younger brother. Uh, and and his job God's was Chinese to,
1: son, was, as, as Spence has it. Exactly.
2: Yeah. And so his job would be to uh, destroy the idols, which are the Confucian and the Buddhist temples, and get rid of uh, uh, ancestor worship, and bring Christianity, a very Chinese form of Christianity, to China. And at the time, in the world at the time, especially in the United States at the time, that type of thinking i mean if you think about mormonism as well i mean that type of thinking was not sort of beyond the christian pale there were all sorts of sects and and ways to change christianity it was a very malleable religion at the time especially in the united states hmm. yeah and yeah. and so these type of ideas appealed to roberts i mean he was initially proselytizing he almost he actually almost baptized Hong Xiuquan, But one of Roberts' other converts got jealous of Hong Xiuquan because Hong Xiuquan's educational level was much higher. And so he basically he he got uh, he sort of convinced Roberts that Hong Xiuquan was actually only interested in Christianity in order to fill his rice bowl and get a right, job. he was a rice Christian. He was yeah. a rice Christian, exactly. Which
1: was nonsense, of course.
2: Which yeah. was nonsense. But because of that competition, basically at the end, Roberts balked at baptizing Hong Xiuquan, and Hong Xiuquan then leaves. He leaves, and Hong Xiuquan then starts this rebellion against the Qing authorities. And at the time, China had been conquered by the Manchus, who were a different ethnicity than the Chinese, and there was an enormous amount of tension between the foreign Controllers of China and and the Han Chinese and along this argument, basically Hong Xiu-Tran starts this you know liberation of China using a variety of ideas, including the American War of Independence, as a justification. It's like, look what the Americans did—they threw the British out. We have to do the same thing with the Manchus, and also using a lot of the techniques that he'd learned in Roberts's church. The full body immersion in baptism, the Ten Commandments, uh, the you know, singing, kind of the trance-like Christian shaker baptism type of you know, religion, you know the, the revival tent, all that type of very impassioned type of Christianity to rally his troops and to get them to fight the Qing. And they began to win and they began to win so quickly and the Qing authorities and the military basically collapsed that within several years... The, uh, the Taipings had taken over Nanjing. had gone had gone right, up from right. Guangxi province, and, and, up, and from
1: there, I mean, of course, uh, there's there's another person who comes in, another American who enters the story, who, you know, maybe represents another archetype, uh, right. Of the so, adventurer.
2: Yeah. And and then and then we have it. So I'm talking about Frederick Townsend Ward, of course. Exactly. So then we have so that the the Taipings have basically taken half of China. And there's a there's a big debate in the United States at the time. of Like, what do we do with China? Right. Do we open relations with the Taiping who are kind of Christian like us? And for a while, there were lots of editorials in places like The New York Times and Hunt's Merchant Review saying, yes, let's trade with the Taipings because the Taipings at the time, they had a huge amount of the tea plantations under their control. So let's trade with the Taipings. Let's do business with them. They're, they're, they're Christians kind of like us. Uh, it's a little different, but nonetheless, we can do business with these people. And Hong Xiu-Chan was arguing this, this line. And, and at a certain point, he gets Roberts to come to Nanjing to kind of work on his behalf. And so that's one line. But then in, in Shanghai, among the uh, Western traders there, there's another group that says, you know, better the devil we know than the devil we don't. And right now, the Qing authorities are so weak that we can divide and conquer. We can force them to do anything we want. We have a pretty good trading relationship with them. So let's let's help the Qing suppress this rebellion and keep China basically weak and divided, but nonetheless malleable enough. And so that was sort of the British idea. And the British take this idea, and because they couldn't actually directly help the Chinese fight the Qing, they go to an American, this guy named Frederick Townsend Ward, who was a soldier of fortune. He'd fought in Nicaragua, and he basically came to China looking for a fight. He initially thought about fighting on behalf of the Taipings, but he couldn't make it to Nanjing. And so when he was given the opportunity to fight the Taipings, he said, «Sure». And so he got a collection of these foreign riffraff from the docks of Shanghai, (laughs) and they began to fight. And then— They're still there. They're they're (laughs) still—exactly. In China, (laughs) often, the more things change, the more things stay the same. So he gets this riffraff, and they start to fight the Taipings. He loses about three-quarters of his men. And then the Chinese say, why don't you teach our soldiers Western military tactics? And then you also have to arm them, too. And using the very porous Chinese customs system, he arms thousands of Chinese and he has a a significantly powerful sort of shock troops that are used by none other than Li Hongzhang, who was a great Chinese commander, to begin to push back the Taiping. So much so that that at a certain point, Mm -hmm. Li Hongzhang has so much faith uh, in Frederick Townsend Ward that he basically says, look, I want you to lead the assault on Nanjing. Right before the assault was supposed to happen, though, Frederick Townsend Ward gets hit in the belly with a with buckshot and, and dies a very painful death. With his last breath, he's demanding payment from the Qing. And apparently he never got it.
1: <laughs> so what, what does he represent to you? I mean, he's cl- clearly he's meant as an archetype. And, you know, he does come back in your story a few times. I mean, references to him, comparisons. A couple to of him.
2: things. One is sort of taking China as it is. Uh, this belief that we should not go overboard in our desire to change China, uh, that that actually a strong, a, a stable, united China is in the best interest of the United States.
1: That's that's similar. Then I mean to another a couple of characters. Who are some of the other people that that you know sort of fit in that archetype as well on the American side? I mean certainly Frank Goodnow comes to mind.
2: Right. Frank Goodnow, uh, Anson Ansing Burlingham, who while Ward was was doing his soldier of fortune routine in Shanghai, Ansing Burlingham was the first U.S. minister to be uh, uh sent to Beijing. Uh, he was a former is, is
1: is the town in Northern
2: California in in on the peninsula named after him? Yes, it is. Uh, yeah. was what? okay. Burlingame, yeah. Ansing yeah. yeah, Burlingame. So and Burlingame was one of the founders of the Republican Party. And if you It's interesting that many of, and he was also a a, a radical abolitionist, and many of the abolitionists after the Civil War, not many, but a significant portion of them actually came to China to do work in China because after the Civil War, China became a really sort of important area for them to to, to lobby for, if you will. And Burlingham's trajectory was fascinating because he was one of the founders of the Republican Party and a hero in the United States of the anti-slavery movement. But he, he caused a lot of headaches because of his unwillingness to compromise on the issue. And, and President Lincoln at the time was, was trying to keep the union together, f- trying to figure out if there was a, a way to compromise on the issue. And, of course, there wasn't in the end and the Civil War happened. But before that, Lincoln basically sends Burlingame out of the country. He first sends him to Vienna to represent the United States in the the court of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But the Viennese don't want him because Burlingame had also been an advocate for independence for some of the principalities that made up the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So they kind of declare him persona non grata. And he Uh then is sent to Beijing to do his work there. And in Beijing, basically, his idea... Which he pushed, and he convinced the British of, of the correctness of that I- idea: is we can we can no longer do gunboat diplomacy with the Chinese. We have to treat them better, and only if we treat them better will they begin to reform in the proper direction. And the Chinese liked that idea very much because it meant a lot less foreign interference in their internal affairs. And so they responded by in the 18 the late. Uh, 1860s, actually asking him to lead the first major Chinese delegation overseas. And so Burlingame leaves the diplomatic service of the United States and becomes, if you will, a Chinese official at the head of this delegation that first went to the States and and then went to Europe, pushing this line that if you're patient with China, China is going to change and it's going to become more and more like us. But you just need to be Uh, patient. uh,
1: Without authorization, he actually goes on and, and negotiates one of the first and most important treaties with the United States.
2: Right. And so you have this peculiar situation where he gets to Washington at the head of this Chinese delegation, and he though he then meets with Secretary of State Seward, and these two white men sit down, one representing China and the other representing the United States, and negotiates what, what is known as the Burlingame Treaty between the Qing dynasty in the United States of China. So, you know, he, he he had no shortage of self-regard on that front that he knew the Chinese interests better than they knew themselves. Uh, and so and, and that treaty actually is considered by party historians in Beijing one of the first of the of the one of the first equal treaties between China and the West.
1: Yeah, there's no question that it is a whole lot more friendly than the Treaty of Tianjin or than any of the other, or, of course, the Nanjing with the, the Brits. Significantly so. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Can we, in a similar vein, um, talk about uh, Adele Field, uh, the woman who Kaiser previously described as a
1: feminist missionary? Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, she's definitely one of your good guys, right? I mean, she's, she's somebody who clearly... Uh, you find to be quite laudable.
2: Yeah, I, I think I didn't really think about breaking the book up into good guys and bad guys. But I mean, what, yeah, but you did. <laughs> well, I, I think but Adele Field, I think her, she's fascinating from my perspective, because she shows that the role that China played in allowing single American women to be the agents of their own life. And I think that's a fascinating strain in the relationship that it's just a great string to pull on because it continues it, it continues up into the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties as well, where in the nineteen eighties for a while most of the American lawyers in, in China for a significant period of time were, were American women. And Virginia Kamsky's consultancy was only hired women. And there was a lot, and there were a lot of American women who did and were very successful in China, and one could argue actually had opportunities in China that they might not have had back in the United States. And Adele field was was where that kind of process began, if you will. She comes to Hong Kong. Already engaged to a Baptist missionary named Cyrus Chilcott, she gets to Hong Kong in May of 1865, waiting on deck for him to come get her in a rowboat so they could go get married, and the rowboat shows up, and he's not on board, and the boatman says, sorry, but while you were on your 149-day voyage, your your fiancé died. And so she's stuck in desolation. And then she basically, the ship's captain says, well, come back to America with me. And she says, no, no, I'm going to go on to Bangkok where they'd originally planned to preach the Chinese migrants. And ultimately she ends up in in Shantou in southern China preaching to the Chinese. And she founds the first Chinese literary program basically for women in modern Chinese history. And she creates this whole group of people she calls the Bible women who are the first uh, literate uh, Chinese, you know, um, underclass, if you will, I mean, peasants. I mean, there were um, numerous, of course, literate Chinese uh, upper class. But to get literacy down to the actual sort of hoi polloi of China, that was, that was an American job. And she did extraordinarily well with that. And then on her furloughs, she, she goes back to the United States and she, gets a, she becomes one of the first Americans to get a medical degree at the University of Pennsylvania. Medical school, and this idea that China was a was a real career opportunity for single American women, then takes root, and so Americans become doctors, and they they become very advanced surgeons in China when in the United States they could barely get into the operating room. They're chairing university departments in China when they could barely teach at the college level. And you have this kind of this growth. And so the American missionary enterprise in China becomes both a very feminine one, but also one where single American women become the largest chunk of the, of the missionary population in China. And I think that's sort of a really important part of, of this this relationship, um, not just between the two countries, but also between the genders um, uh, that, that, that fascinated me.
1: Another example of how the relationship actually changes America profoundly but let's talk some now about some of the Chinese characters that you introduce, and and maybe segueing off of of of, uh, of Adele Field, we can talk about Mary Stone and Ida Kong, or Shimei Yu and and Kang, Kang Cheng, Right. So these two women.
2: Right. So they Mary Stone. I'll I'll just use their angle size names. Mary Stone and Ida Kong were were, um, were Chinese women raised by uh, an American missionary. in in Zhejiang along the Yangtze River Delta in the late 19th century. And the missionary who raised them believed basically, I mean, she adopted several Chinese girls. Again, American women missionaries were really at the forefront against female infanticide in China, right? They, They would post these placards by lakes and ponds saying, you know, do not throw your baby into the water, uh, put her in the basket. And so M- Mary Stone uh, was not like that. She was given t- to the missionary by her father, but Ida Khan wa- was probably going to be on the block for being killed, but ultimately was saved by the missionary. And she then gave them education and she saved up enough money to bring them to the University of Michigan where they took a medical degree. And then they returned to China as Methodist missionaries. Of course, the Methodists didn't pay them as much as they paid the white American missionaries, which was not there, but they paid them a little bit more than they paid what they called native missionaries. So they were somewhere in between this kind of this zone between Chinese and, and foreign. And yeah, just like the highway Very. Right. Very <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right. It's exactly that's a, that's a very good point there's so many echoes. And so they then begin to open medical installations and also almost single-handedly create the profession of nursing in China for Chinese women as a a legitimate profession. And so you you see the the interaction between the United States and China kind of creating these, these amalgamated people, these hyphenated people who come back to either United States or China and bring in these ideas from the other country uh, to it. And so we have nursing being created in China by them. Again, with Adele Fields, we have these opportunities being created uh, by China for single Americans as well. And for, for a time, Mary Stone was so popular in the United States... Among among American women, that there were these big debates. For example, in Smith College, about who was the most important woman of the time: Jane Adams, who at the time was this leading American progressive, or Mary Stone, uh, and she was wow. and she was a hit across the country in churches. Because you know, she could speak vernacular English, she always was up on the latest slang. You know, she wore a Chinese tunic on the top and a Western dress on the bottom. So in in, in and of herself, she was an amalgam of, of the two cultures. And at the time you have to remember, you know, church going was hugely popular in America, and giving to China was enormous. I mean, eight million Americans in nineteen hundred gave money to China. That's a significant percentage of the US adult population. And, and churches were a place where speakers came, and Mary Stone was a compelling public speaker. And so she really changed the lives of many Americans, and then she convinced thousands, literally thousands, of, of Protestant missionaries to come to China to work for China's development.
0: John, at this point, we could go on, I think, for days asking you about many of the characters in the book, but let's end this little section with three characters who also, I think, can fit into this way of talking about people and archetypes. And I'm thinking of uh, Luo Longji, uh, Lin Yutang, and P.C. Chang. Can, can you tell us about them and you know, what they represent to you in terms of the American-Chinese relationship?
2: So the three, the three fellows, Luo Longji, Lin Yutang, and P.C. Chang, or Zhang Pengchun uh, in Chinese, basically represent the liberal Chinese minority. All three were educated in the United States. Lo Longji was also educated in the UK. Lin Yutang was also educated in Germany. Uh, P.C. Chang was a playwright. Uh, P.C. Chang is really, I think, sort of from my perspective, well, they're all all three fascinating people, but P.C. Chang is sort of less known in some ways than Lin Yutang. Lin Yutang was quite famous in the United States because he wrote in English. He wrote actually one of the first self-help books in the United States called The Importance of Living, Uh, And it's actually worth a read now. So he, uh, all of these men were very active in China in the 1910s and 20s. Well, P.C. Chang at the time was in uh, Colombia, but then he returns to China. And they all were active in the 20s in a very open period of China's history, where a lot of intellectual ideas were being tossed around, both Marxist, but also liberal, some fascist as well. Uh, And it was a time both in Shanghai and Beijing of real intellectual ferment. And Lu Lin and P C Chang were, were liberals from that perspective. They believed in, significantly believed in individual rights. They believed that as China modernized, it should not destroy individual rights because only a free individuals can actually create a great country. That was generally their argument. And all three of them got sideways with both the communists and the, the KMT, the Guomindang, which was the ruling party of, of China and Lin Yutang basically several of his friends as with Lu Luong-ji as well were assassinated some by the by the communists some by the by the KMT. Lin Yutang fled China in the 1930s to come to America and where where he became a very successful writer in English, the first great Chinese American writer. And so as time passed, Lin Yutang found himself to be specifically during the Second World War, increasingly at odds with American liberals on China. Right. American liberals began to go move away from Chiang Kai-shek and move away from the KMT and accuse Chiang Kai-shek of not fighting the Japanese, of, of basically hoarding his, his, the weaponry that America was giving China and waiting for the civil war and allowing America to do all the fighting. And Lin Yutong actually didn't believe this. He actually believed that, that Jiang was fighting and wasn't being given credit for this. And he also had a great fear of the communists. And so he had, had been very close at one time with, for example, Edgar Snow. The great American journalist, but they those two broke over which party in China to support. With Snow backing strenuously backing the communists, saying America should have actually take the communists on as an ally against the Japanese, whereas Lin Yutang saying, "Watch out! You have to read what the communists are writing. You have to look at what the communists are doing to their own people. If you're just listening to what the communists are telling you, you're being bamboozled. You're being tricked." You have to see what the communists are actually doing to their own people. And so there was a huge break between them. Luolongji was actually- and,
1: and we'll get into that debate, of course, in yeah, a little bit. Sure. But, um, let's, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, this third individual who, I, as you say, is probably the least well-known. And he was, of course, the author or one of the principal authors of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Right.
2: That's P.C. Or... Chang. So P.C. Chang has kind of been forgotten by both the Taiwanese side of, of historiography in China and the Chinese side. Uh, which I think is is a great shame. So he was in America in the 1910s at Columbia. He actually wrote uh, the first English version of the Mulan play. And then in, in the 30s in America, he brought a, a great Chinese Beijing opera star to the United States. And he put on a... Um, Mei Lanfang. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A, a, a uh, Mei Lanfang, a, a nationwide performance by this guy. So he was really very adept at packaging sort of Chinese concepts For Western audiences. That's how he really was, he was very good at doing that. And then he became a diplomat for the KMT. He never actually joined the party, but when the United Nations was was formed after the Second World War, he was appointed on the uh, Committee for Human Rights that the UN was forming and he was involved in the the writing the drawing up of the universal declaration on human rights and he played an enormous role there again kind of going back to his this extraordinary ability he had of of packaging chinese ideas that would be easily consumed by his western interlocutors and so right. in the writing of the declaration he was uh, played an enormously important role as 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 all the um in which in arguing that human rights are critically important and one's rights are really important, but there's also something else that is important, is also talking about not just your rights in a society, but your responsibilities to that society. And he inserted this Confucian concept of Ren, which is a a character written with a person and then the number two, which basically is the idea that people are social animals and that as a social animal, you have a responsibility. You get your rights from the society, but you also have a responsibility to that society. He also was critically important in removing any mention in the Universal Declaration to nature or to God granting humans these rights. Because he said, look, there's people who don't believe this, and it's a lot of the, not a lot of the world. You cannot write this document from a solely Western perspective. And so these concepts that he inserted, which are in one case, he got God taken out, which is a a Chinese idea as well, that that, that rights actually come from society and not from above. And then also the idea that you not only have rights, but you also have responsibilities are both very Chinese concepts packaged for Western consumption. And so from that perspective, he was extraordinarily successful. And in that tiny document, you see his his, his paw prints all over it, which I think is just a, a remarkable story.
1: Uh, note to listeners, we decided to just keep going with our conversation with John Pomfret since there was really so much to talk about in the book. And so tune in next week to hear the second half of the chat, which takes us all the way up to the present. I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SupChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at SupChina.com. You can follow Subchina on Twitter at, at News and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash News. If you like the podcast, by all means, leave us a positive review on the Apple App Store or on Google Play or wherever it is that you go to review apps. This really helps, and it means an awful lot to us. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Thanks this week to the good folks at the UC Berkeley School of Journalism's studio, where John Potfitt joined us from. And special thanks, as always, to Anne Cheng and Sarai Darabi from SupChina. Drop us an email at... Seneca at subchina.com Visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Seneca Podcast Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care.